everyone. Welcome to American Vapor Manufacturers Weekly Twitter Space, where we talk to the activists, policy wonks, and people helping us fight the good fight to protect access to vaping. This week, we have two great guests joining our conversation. First, from the Competitive Enterprise Institute, we have with us consumer advocate Michelle Minton, who boldly declared recently an end to the youth vaping epidemic. Welcome to you, Michelle. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. And from Filter Magazine, we have the author of what is one of this week's absolute must-reads entitled, The FDA's Vape Fiasco Will Perpetuate Smoking Deaths. Uh, Helen Redmond, thank you for joining us. Got Helen on. We'll get her uh, promoted to speaker here in a second, but thanks for joining us, Helen. Um, we're going to be discussing both of your excellent pieces shortly, uh, but we wanted to start with the latest on the nicotine tax proposal that set the vaping world on fire. Um, so we want to talk about specifically who is paying for the Build Back Better Act. We've been watching Congress very closely as they're debating President Biden's top priority, the Build Back Better Act. Rather than discussing what's in the bill, we're going to focus on who is going to pay for it. And right now that appears to be vapors. Last week, we got the hopeful news that the radical hike in nicotine packs had been taken out of the bill, but things changed fast in Washington. And now it's back and even worse since the new version no longer increases taxes on cigarettes which effectively incentivizes a product that is proven to cause real harm. Joe Biden made a campaign pledge to never raise taxes on anyone making less than $400,000 a year. But in Congress, Nancy Pelosi and the progressive wing of the Democrat Party are set on making the president break his promise since this tax will fall heavily on poor and working class Americans. Got a question for Helen. Uh, what is the latest you're hearing? And can you walk us through what senators like Joe Manchin are saying and give us your best analysis on what will happen next? Looks like uh, we've got to, got to get uh, Helen connected as a speaker here. Michelle, did you want to ask that question or did you want to take on that question? Um, anything you're uh, hearing now and, and what do you think is going to happen next? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, Helen might be able to speak to this a little bit better. I think she might be in the political weeds on on the issue more than I have been. But from what I'm hearing, you know, this is really a kind of a classic uh, mathematical problem for government. And, uh, you know, instead of going after millionaires and billionaires it's very difficult they have a lot of money a lot of connections a lot of power uh you know they got uh members of congress got significant amounts of pushback on their original plan to pay for this you know over trillion dollar or nearly two trillion dollar spending package on the other hand you have smokers who like drinkers and drug users for a long time are just really low hanging fruit for pretty much everything a lot of smokers are already beat down emotionally you know many of them won't even feel okay with standing up to not be uh, taxed more heavily so you know when the democrats were hashing this out and trying to make up the money to pay for all of the spending that they want to do in the bill and a lot of it's you know important stuff that would really benefit huge numbers of people in the country but they have to pay for it in order to get it passed in order to get a good cbo score so they look to a group of people that have not so much power who may not make as much noise uh you know there's a famous quote about the art of taxation is plucking the goose with the least amount of squawking i think that's what we're seeing now is they figured they could get the nicotine tax in it it looked really good to their you know the health groups that are pushing for it 
uh, even though it doesn't raise cigarette taxes or anything like that, it's going to sound good. And, and most people in this country don't smoke or use nicotine. So there's probably not going to be a terrible amount of pushback, especially from, you know, the millionaires and billionaires like Michael Bloomberg, who would rather see nicotine be taxed than, you know, one of their loopholes where they hide all their money. So I think I think the, the prospects of the tax are still 50-50. You know, um, Senator Manchin is pushed back a little it was you know what he said wasn't as great as i'm sure as strong as we'd all like to hear his pushback he's saying you know why why this now but what that represents is in the background a lot of other members of the senate are having issues with the nicotine tax and expressing that to senator manchin and he verbalized so i'm i think what we're all hoping is that there are more members in the senate who really do not like this tax and do not want it included for many reasons uh for their constituents for their states for public health and i think you know in senate they'll push back enough that yeah i think i think it's it's more than 50 50 that we won't see this tax actually make it through but there's always a chance i think my i'm unmuted now this is helen Hi, Helen. Thank you. Uh, did you want to um, offer your thoughts? I know you've been spending a lot of time uh, monitoring this issue and working on this. Um, you know, what's what's your analysis on what we'll see from here regarding this? Tax? Well, I agree with a lot of what Michelle said. And I would add that the reason they can do this, that they can put this outrageous tax on uh, on nicotine is because the anti vapors, the tobacco harm reduction haters have laid the ground so well to tax this product, right? They've created the teen vaping hysteria. They have all the junk science. So Congress can jump on it and say, yeah, um, we can tax this now. And it's infuriating because in this country, it seems like whenever they want to raise tax revenue, they go to what we call, right, the sin taxes. They go to alcohol, they go to tobacco, they go to gambling. And more recently, cannabis, because 18 states have uh, legalized uh, cannabis for adult use, we see really high taxes on cannabis to the point where people um, can't afford it. And it's allowed in many states, right? I'm, I'm talking to you from Oakland, California. They have one of the biggest illicit markets in the country because people can't afford what's available at the dispensary. So I, I, the other thing I would add to this discussion, if the tax does go through, my fear and other people in this who work in this space have expressed it as well, is that it will create an illicit market. So rich people will be able to afford these products, but poor and working class people who have the highest rates of smoking and might want to transition won't be able to afford those products and will go to an illicit market where we know there are very few or no uh, quality control. So that's what I would add to, to this. Uh, it's really outrageous uh, tax, which hurts the most vulnerable people in our country. Absolutely. Thanks for that, Helen. Uh, Michelle, I wanted to ask you a question that I also asked Matt Cully last week. Um, and it's a very simple question. Uh, do taxes deter behavior? Uh, they can. You know, so that's a really complicated question. It really depends on the person and it depends on the tax and it depends on the product you're taxing, right? So there's something called um, elasticities of demand where you, there's a certain level where, uh, you know, if you put a $10 tax on a, a beer, a lot of people are going to be deterred from drinking that beer. Usually the people who 
don't drink all that much, honestly. And they might go to something cheaper. Uh, we've seen this before with taxes on alcohol. For example, there was an experiment done in a town in New York where they split the town in half. They put a 75 um, cent tax on it was soda, actually, on sugar, sugar sweetened beverages. And the other half didn't have the tax. And the one half with the tax, you know, they did drop their soda drinking for a little bit after the tax was first put in place. But what the researchers found was that that town, that side of the town that had the tax also increased their drinking, uh, their beer drinking, because the price of beer became closer in parallel with the price of a beer. So, you know, this thing with consumers and choices, you know, you say, I'm going to put a tax on this one thing that I don't like. There's a million other choices or, you know, many other choices consumers can go to, including illegal sources. So I, I think with um, tobacco taxation specifically, not even just talking about vaping, but you know, cigarettes and tobacco, uh, you know, people who are really smart in government who've been looking at this, not not necessarily the political ones, but the bureaucrats who look at this stuff have known for a long time that when you're taxing tobacco, it's this very tight. Uh, this very small tightrope that you have to walk in order to make sure that you can tax to deter the people who might be casual smokers or young people who might be thinking about buying their first pack uh, to deter them with taxes, but not to tax it so much that the hardcore smokers or the committed smokers are then going to look to illicit sources or, or alternate sources, things that might be less healthy, things that might be illegal. Uh, and so that's that's what we're looking at now. And, and you know, when you're talking about the big umbrella term tobacco, which now includes vaping uh, and, you know, they're going to try and make it include synthetic nicotine products as well. You know, consumers are going to look at those prices and they're going to, especially people who are outside of this conversation, they're not in the political weeds. They're going to say, well, I'm a 50 year old smoker. I've been hearing about this e-cigarette thing. Maybe I know someone who recommended it. I'm going to go take a look and then they're going to see the price of it after a tax like this. And they're going to say, you know, at best, it costs as much as a pack of cigarettes. It's this weird newfangled technology. I already know I like smoking. Why should I pay more money or or the same amount of money for something I don't know I like or that's not quite as good? Uh, it, it's it's really bad public health policy when you're talking about taxes and you have to look at okay we have a tax we're going to deter people from something but you have to also look at where are they going to go where are they deterred to and th th this sort of tax this is not about health this is about money and I think most of the people who are writing this will you know when put to the press they will say that's that's the case this is just about finding money but you know this is going to have a huge impact on people's health choices. And that needs to be looked at. You know, we're saying, oh, we're going to make up the money here. What about the back end when you have all these mostly low income people who choose to keep smoking because it just doesn't make financial sense for them to switch to a safer nicotine source? And then they get diseases that cost you know, society money through through the healthcare. Uh, none of that has been added in. I, do I doubt CBO will even have enough time to do that kind of economic analysis. And we're already seeing it parts of the country in San Francisco and Massachusetts where smoking rates are going up again. This is just this is the, the dumbest, most ill-advised um, tax policy. It's even dumber now than it was before when they were trying to also raise taxes on on cigarettes because you're going to have a much bigger Consumers on the on the ground here are going to see a giant jump, an increase in the price of safer products, and they're gonna, it's, it's basically the opposite of saying this is on sale. You know, big advertising. This is on sale, even if it really isn't on sale. People go, "Ooh, it's on sale. Maybe I'll consider buying this because it's a deal." Uh, you have the exact opposite happening in in consumers' minds when you have a giant price increase on one product versus another. Absolutely. So I, I think, uh, you know, I, it will definitely uh, deter behavior. But is that uh, going to deter behavior into more dangerous uh, consumer behaviors? And it certainly seems like the answer there is yes. 
Um, Helen, did you have anything else you wanted to add on, on this taxation topic? Well, I, Amanda, I liked what you called it. You called it political lunacy. Um, so I'd like to add that. But also, I, I, I actually would make the case that we should not tax vaping products at all. There are things in our society, it varies state by state, right, that have no tax. So in some states, medications aren't taxed. You go to the pharmacy, you pick it up, there's no tax on it. In some states, food is not taxed. Things that are really vital to people's health, I don't believe should be taxed. And so I would make the case that vaping products should not be taxed at all because we have an epidemic of smoking in our country where you all know the number, half a million die every year. And a way to actually make that number drop down dramatically is to make these vaping products, these safer vaping products available affordable and one way is to not tax them at all imagine that not taxing vape products at all absolutely and i I think back to um the root of what these cigarette taxes were intended to accomplish and um you know i think michelle helen you two both have far more expertise on this than i do so feel free to jump in here but my understanding is that that cigarette taxes are really meant to offset the cost to the healthcare system um, by all of the harms that that people experience, the health harms people experience from smoking, uh, which don't exist when when people are using vaping products. And so I, I think it would be beneficial to to remember what these cigarette taxes were initially uh, proposed, uh, you know, as a solution to which were these, you know, dramatically increased costs on the healthcare system. Well, I I am not in agreement with people who say tax tobacco, tax it, tax it, tax it. We have been doing that in the United States for decades, and we have not seen the rates of smoking, right, among the most vulnerable populations, people with mental health problems, folks who are homeless, you know, um, the list. I, I talk about that in the, the piece I wrote for Filter last week. So taxes are not affecting them. We have to move away from that and uh, move to a real public health model where we provide these products and, and actually in some cases free. Um, I'm sure you've all heard the in Britain, the um, National Health uh, Service is um, again looking at providing a product which would be free at the, the point of, um, you know, someone picking it up at a, at a pharmacy in Britain, um, picking up an electronic uh, cigarette. Um, so I think that, and then this notion of, well, we're using these taxes to pay for healthcare. Our entire healthcare system is screwed up, right? We have the, the most dysfunctional healthcare system in the world. We have 30 million who are uninsured. We need a dramatic overhaul of our, of our healthcare system. I'm for single payer, a national healthcare system, Medicare for all. And then, and then we don't have to worry about, well, we have to tax, we have to do the sin taxes to pay for healthcare. We need um, other revenues to care for all the people who have smoking related d- diseases. We need a, a healthcare system. And I know this is a whole other thing um, that actually um, is everybody in and nobody out. 
Uh, Helen, I think that's such a, a great segue into talking about uh, your uh, piece from last week. Uh, fair warning, we don't have a, a censor here at Twitter Spaces. Uh, so here's your opportunity to leave if language offends you because I'm about to use a swear word. Um, but Helen, your uh, recent reporting makes the point that the public health community irresponsibly refuses to admit. Uh, restricting vaping will mean a return to smoking and a return to smoking deaths. In your piece, you describe the FDA regulatory review process as, quote, lame as fuck, and you say losing more people to smoking is, quote, unacceptable as fuck. Um, the floor is yours. Walk us through your argument. Well, I, again, like many people who work in this, this area, I'm so over the kind of drama trauma of the PMTA process. It's just been going on for so long. And we knew from the get-go that it was going to be a train wreck because the way they have framed this whole approval process is wrong as fuck. And as we know, it's all framed about how do we uh, regulate these products, get them out there, and they don't pose a risk to youth. And so that whole frame is wrong. It's a setup to get it all wrong. And so I wrote this piece uh, to just kind of highlight why that, that whole process is wrong and where we really need to focus, what this PMTA process should have focused on is we have 38 million smokers and we know the demographic, right? Rich people stopped smoking a long time ago. Poor people smoke and people from vulnerable communities. How do we get these, pro how do we regulate them in a way to get them to the people who need them the most, right? I mean, I don't know if people know my background, but I've been working with people who use drugs for decades, people with mental health problems, and there are real challenges to getting these products. They're doing it in other countries, in particular in Britain. They have projects, they have research projects about how do we get these products to people who are un unhoused. People who are unhoused have some of the highest rates of smoking. It's a real challenge. And so in this piece, I'm, I'm trying to think about that because that's really what it's all about. If we want to drop that rate of smoking down, we have to go and work with people who have no enormous challenges, who enjoy smoking. It's one of the few pleasures that they have. Do we know if our prod the products that some of the companies who, who make these products, the vape uh, shop, people who sell them, are they acceptable to this demographic who have enormous challenges, right? You're on a house, where do you keep it? Do you lose it? Does somebody steal it? It's not like some other people who, you know, they, they buy their stuff, they have the money, they go home, they don't have to worry about those things. So that's what I'm trying to get at in this piece. And, um, you know, I'm speaking, at, I'm not speaking as a person who writes for Filter. I'm speaking on my own um, because I wanted to tell you, I had in the article a lot more aggressive language, which my editor took out. And one of the things that my editor took out that I really wanted to stay in there is that Mitch Zeller can take his M MDOs and shove them up his ass. Because that, <laughs> that's how furious I was. It's like, you're giving marketing um, the, these you know, stop orders to the very companies, the small and medium companies that are creating these products and getting them to vape shop owners. 
and you're putting them out of business, you're telling them that they're out of business. And that to me was like, we kind of knew it was coming, but it's just unacceptable to me. And then the last thing I was trying to do in this piece is I talked about a little bit about the pandemic. And I really believe that because of COVID-19, we are rethinking everything in our society. We're thinking where we work, how we work. We're looking at our healthcare system and looking how it failed. Education, all the kids are at home now. How do you manage that, right? And so we need to look at the Center for Tobacco Products and the FDA in a whole new way and really rebuild the uh, Center for Tobacco Products. Basically, we'll tear it down first because for me, it, it absolutely doesn't work. It's full of the t- tobacco warriors, right? Those that they're there are a lot of older folks, nothing against older folks, but they can't think of new ways. And I think Mitch Zeller really exemplifies that. So we need to build a new center, which I you know, just kind of called the Center for Safer Nicotine Products, and hire a whole new group of people who can think outside the box, who can think creatively, because they made it really clear in this whole process that they, can't, they are not suited to do this, right, because of the way they conceptualized this whole process. So rethinking how we do this and creating a new agency to do that, I wanted to put that out there for people to think about it. Because again, in so many areas now in our country, because of the pandemic, we have to think in new ways. So many great points. And we're uh, featuring a tweet in this space right now that uh, links to Helen's very excellent piece. I I recommend everybody listening to go check that out if you haven't read it already. Um, Thank you, Helen, for for putting that out there and and really giving a voice to to the frustrations that so many of us have. Um, And, you know, I want to transition now uh, to Michelle's very excellent uh, work on the youth vaping epidemic, which obviously is the banner under which um, you know FDA's regulatory arson has been done. Um, in September, the CDC and FDA released data that youth vaping was down 60% over the last two years. As someone who owns and operates and speaks for the small vape shops, I can tell you that this is welcome news since our industry has worked very hard to address this issue, and it seems that the steps we're taking um, have largely been successful. Michelle, you published a great article recently that made a very bold prediction, declaring an end to the youth vaping epidemic. I'm going to read a quote from your piece and ask you to share your thoughts. Uh, Quote, it's no accident that the debate over vaping has become singularly fixated on the issue of youth vaping. That is the intended result of a well-funded political campaign aimed at dragging the conversation away from the science, which shows e-cigarettes are a life-saving alternative to combustible tobacco, and instead transforming the issue into a false moral choice between saving adults or protecting children. Michelle, you've dug deep into the CDC survey data. What have you found? So, you know, most of the people listening probably already know what I'm going to say is that there never was an epidemic of teen vaping. Uh, But even, you know, at the height of youth experimentation with nicotine vapor, you know, it was still it was high. It was disturbing. It you know warranted attention, but it was never an epidemic, which the actual definition by the CDC's own, own definition of what an epidemic is, is a widespread behavior in a population that causes harm or some kind of disease. And, you know, 
what I think Helen was getting at and what I was trying to get at this paper when Helen was speaking before, I mean, uh, and what I was trying to get at with this piece is this transition that we've observed in tobacco control and specifically in tobacco politics and the regulation of tobacco is this shift from a focus on adult smokers, the people who are going to get the diseases with the goal of reducing disease and death. And that has now transitioned where the politics of tobacco are almost entirely focused on non-smokers and not necessarily about disease or death, but the idea of dependence. And so, you know, when Helen said the anti-tobacco groups really did a great job in laying the groundwork for the tax that we're looking at now, um, I completely agree with that. And one of the things they did was using this nicotine, this, you know, in quotes, air quotes, addictive substance as a talking point. And it worked really well when it came to cigarettes. It, it freaked people out and it you know, made you think twice about starting this thing if they didn't want to become addicted to cigarettes. Uh, but now when we're looking at a country that is, is really, especially among the youth, is approaching a smoke-free society. You know, that's about when you get to 5% and under of the population that smokes, you are considered a smoke-free society. And, and we are getting very close. The youth daily smoking or current smoking is, is only at about 3% at this point. That is, that is vanishingly small. And those, you know, those kids who still do smoke deserve all of the assistance and help that they can get if they want to quit and should be encouraged to do so or encouraged to switch to safer nicotine products like nicotine replacement therapy, which the government has been talking about allowing for minors for a few years now. And that's uh, I think that's a great idea, giving youth who do smoke, who are dependent, every tool available to them to reduce their risk and save their lives. But if we're talking about the you know, prior to the modern era, the focus was really on preventing disease and death. And, you know, to the tobacco control community's credit, they helped us get to where we are now. And that smoking, at least overall, is is a vanishing problem. Of course, like Helen noted, smoking is still insanely high, disturbingly high in some groups. Uh, indigenous people, people who are incarcerated, homeless, as Helen mentioned, you know, we're talking about smoking rates in these groups in the 60s, 70s, 80%, when you get to people who have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or other major mental health issues, we're talking about 80%, 90%. These are crazy numbers and, and no one is, not nobody, but uh, people who are pushing the tobacco policies at the moment, the people with power, the people who've been in this game, in this world for multiple decades, they're not really talking about those people, the people who are actually going to get sick and die when they're in their 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, and my piece that I was writing about is this, we need to stop only thinking about children and youth. And this goes for every policy. You really cannot focus any policy exclusively on one group, which is where we are now with tobacco policy. It's so focused on the youth. And, and the reason for that is rhetorical, honestly. Yeah, the tobacco control did this back in the day when they were they decided to go after smoking. And they knew that they were going to have a hard time getting around Americans' reaction, this idea that, uh, you know, well, it's my body, it's my choice, you know, a lovely thing in a lot of realms, but people in tobacco control, like, how do we get around this personal freedom issue? So they made it about non-smokers and they made it about kids. And over decades, uh, tobacco control, the leaders in tobacco control really decided that the best way in to get us towards a smoke-free society was to stop people from becoming smokers in the first place, since most smokers, not all, 
I'm actually one of those people, a former smoker who started in my 20s. And I knew exactly what I was doing. I knew all the risks and I did it anyway for for my own reasons. And there was no amount of of cajoling that was going to stop me. Trust me, my mother still doesn't know I smoke and I'm still hiding it from her because (laughs) because I understand the risks and how silly it is. But I did it anyway. Uh, But you know, so tobacco control is focused on preventing youth from starting smoking and now from starting nicotine. And, you know, what that does is it completely deprioritizes everything else that could go along with tobacco policy. For example, when, you know, in Obamacare, when they were looking at tobacco and other things, they put in some, you know, some hurdles for, for tobacco smokers and the, the controls that they put in. Uh, I was just reading a study a little while ago that found not only did it not reduce smoking in most populations, it reduced uptake of insurance. So you actually reduced access to insurance by putting in these rules and, you know, getting people, especially people who are low income, who are disadvantaged, getting them adequate health care coverage is a huge priority for a lot of people. It is not a priority for tobacco control. That is not the thing they care about. And they are willing, they don't, they don't they just don't care. So they're willing to sacrifice that important interest to get their goal of eliminating nicotine use among youth. And the same is true, I think. I think if you ask them, they would say, of course we care about adult smokers, but their actions say something different and that they don't really care about adults who smoke, adults who use nicotine, whatever it is, so long as, you know, even if their policies increase all of those things, so long as they supposedly reduce smoking and nicotine use by kids, that's all they care about. And that's uh, that's a real problem. I, I Tobacco control has been that way for a while. The disturbing thing is that people in government seem to be on board with that now. And that's really that is not a good way to make sane policy that has uh, good outcomes, you know, the outcomes that you want with your policies. If you're just saying, well, we won because we got a tax in. If you don't look and see what the effects are to everybody in society, you are not uh, you are not a good government actor. Absolutely. Helen, what do you think? Are we still facing a youth vaping epidemic or are we facing entrenched special interest in need of a new issue or mission creep, as it's sometimes called? I think, uh, Helen, I think you might still be on mute. Oh, sorry. Um, I I really agree with uh, Michelle's excellent article. It just kind of really... um, went through why it it never was and if it sort of kind of was it's over what i would like to add is on just the i i've been reporting um on the drug war for uh, again several decades and what is remarkable is how illicit drugs the way that you pass laws so that nobody can use them that adults can't use them is you create a panic around the children, right? We've seen this with every illicit drug. And I'll I'll just mention cannabis because now we're going in the opposite direction, right? We're legalizing it, regulating it for adult use. It took us decades and decades to get to that point, but that is always the way in to get something, uh, to demonize something is you use the children. And it's so cynical and it's so disgraceful because prohibition doesn't help the children, right? Uh, drug dealers don't ask for identification. They don't, in general, care who their customers are. They want to make money. And so the children, in creating that hysteria, a drug panic, 
is just part of American history around drugs. And it's so destructive. You can look at cannabis. You can look at crack cocaine. You know, the crack attack. And the media, of course, plays a huge role here. So the children are very cynically used. And, of course, that is how they have been used around nicotine, this obsessive, this OCD focus on teen use of nicotine, the lies, the misinformation that always accompany a drug panic, just full of it, right? Which uh, those of us who write and work in this space spend a lot of time, uh, unfortunately, debunking that uh, the lies that the drug panic just depends on. So uh, it's really, it's, it doesn't help the children and it harms adults, right? Especially when we're talking about nicotine. And I wish that we could move away from that, from having these drug panics unleashed that always um, look at the children. Because at the end of the day, they don't end up helping anybody. Um, they don't get rid of drug use. Um, we will always live in a world that has, has drugs in it. And the best thing we can do is reduce the harm. And of course, for at least a decade now, we've had these amazing products that can dramatically reduce the harms of smoking. And because of this so-called teen vaping panic, it's really blocked our ability to do the right thing. Uh and this, this conversation is, is, is really outlined by a very false dichotomy, right, of youth versus adults. And I, I for one, believe uh, we're smart enough in this country to craft policy that, that, you know, where we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can prevent minors from accessing products while also making sure that, that the adults who need them are able to access them. Um, Let's see. So I, I think um, we're going to go ahead and um, cover a really interesting topic. We're going to draw attention to work just completed by Dr. Kothar Hajat. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, who is a UK based uh, public health physician and epidemiologist who has done a review of 37 separate studies that evaluated health outcomes from vaping. And this is her headline, quote, harmful health outcomes from e-cigarettes are minimal to zero. Dr. Hajat reports, and I quote, the findings of our review are that risk from the use of ENDS, electronic nicotine delivery systems, range from minimal to zero. She argues that a clear distinction needs to be made between harmful tobacco products such as cigarettes and nicotine delivery systems that can aid the fight against tobacco use. Question for Michelle. Why is the U.S. falling so far behind places like the United Kingdom, Sweden, and New Zealand when it comes to the way they view tobacco harm reduction and vaping as a tool for promoting public health? Yeah, the, the answer is ideological. You know, if you, the, I mean, it's hard to say that this is a problem because I know there's a lot of people in tobacco control have done a lot of good work, but what we're seeing now really is a product of the fact that the United States has such a robust and long-standing tobacco control system and uh, organizations and industry, if you want to call it. If you look at places like Japan, where the emphasis has been, they don't really have quite as robust a social society network aimed at reducing smoking. There, it's more about respecting your neighbors. And they're, you know, they're like, if you want to smoke, go ahead. Just don't throw your butts on the ground. Don't blow your smoke in people's faces. And so when something like uh, heated tobacco comes in, 
you know, there wasn't a big pushback against it. And it was it was enormous. And, you know, we're seeing the successes there, how fast it can happen. And honestly, tobacco control in the U.S., in in other parts of the, for lack of a better term, Western world should have really looked at what happened in Japan with with certain amount with a certain amount of shame, honestly, in that, you know, we pat ourselves on the back for decades of declines, which are, you know, one of the greatest public health success stories in history. But, you know, what we're looking at are declines on the order of 1% here, half a percent there, sometimes going up, you know, some percentage of a point, uh, when we could be having so much more radical reductions. And we know we can because we look at other countries where it is already happening. The UK is going to pass the United States uh, on on the smoking rate. Right now, I think we're almost about equal, maybe. It's still a little bit higher in the UK. But over the next couple of years, their smoking rates are going to decline far more rapidly than they are in the US, uh, Canada, even and especially Australia. And I think you know, what we have is a problem in our political system. We have an ideologically driven tobacco policy where they are not looking at outcomes anymore. They are fighting ideological battles of saying, you know, and I think a big problem that's only happened recently in the last five to 10 years with the e-cigarettes have really been the lightning bolt uh, on this. But but we have um, I kind of lost my train of thought there. But I was going to say we have people like Bloomberg coming in and giving money to a lot of groups and they have a very specific system of how they distribute money and how they decide who to give money or and keep giving money to these groups and a lot of it is on what you have to show us what you did with this money what successes did you have obviously they're not going to go to bloomberg and say look we completely eliminated smoking that's impossible what they're going to say is we passed this bill in massachusetts or we got this you know we got this law passed in san francisco uh, and then they're not going to go back the next year and say, and here's what it did. Here are the results in the actual population. Here's how many people stopped smoking, how many people didn't get diseases. So they're not looking at those endpoints anymore. It's it's much more political in the U.S. and in Canada and in the U.K. as well. But the U.K. really, uh, yeah, and one of the arguments has been, one of the reasons people say, why did the U.K. embrace e-cigarettes when the United States and increasingly Canada are so hostile towards novel nicotine products? I think the answer is that bureaucrats in the UK, they really, it's mathematical. You know, if they're doing a good job, their country saves money uh, because they pay for the healthcare system there for everybody. So they actually really are on the line. The bureaucrats making decisions are, their jobs are on the line if they do something that radically increases costs for the country. So they looked at the evidence and they said, clearly, we have known forever, you know, in, in the research community, in the scientific community, we've known forever that nicotine isn't the problem. That's why we have nicotine replacement therapies and why we push it. And frankly, the FDA and other you know, health agencies in the U.S. should be looking at this anti-nicotine rhetoric <clears> with, <throat> with a huge amount of, of fear because that message is, is going out to smokers. There are smokers who are very reticent to use even nicotine replacement therapies because they've been told nicotine is dangerous. Uh, but you don't have that in the U.K. because they just look at the evidence and know that it's not. They know the problem is combustion and they understand the very basics. So I don't know why, honestly, America is still having this fight. We said, look, we gave you control of this. You know what the science is. Now, what your job is, is to make sure that the safer nicotine products that are available on the U.S. market for adults are safe, that they, they're not adulterated with anything weird. They're not going to blow up in people's faces left and right, uh, you know, not to bring back a nightmare from previous years when we were all talking about vapes blowing up, which happened, I think, a grand total of three times. But, you know, sane bureaucrats 
who have the right incentives. And I think that's really the big problem here in the U.S. is that top to bottom, president on down, the incentives are all wrong. And, uh, you know, when Helen was talking about starting a new agency with an FDA, uh, I think that might be a good a good idea. But I think agency wide, we really need uh, to look at what incentives we're setting for bureaucrats, for politicians, for state governments, uh, in order to make sure that what we are incentivizing is not just that people behave as we want them to, but they behave in ways that improve their health, that they have the options available to be as healthy as possible. And like Helen said, prohibitions have never worked. People will get their swerve on. They always have, uh, from the dawn of time, people have been searching for a way to uh, reach an altered state of consciousness, let's say. And nicotine, frankly, is really one of the lowest level drugs in terms of harm that it could have on an individual or a society. Uh, so what we are seeing now, as we saw with, you know, cannabis, with, um, with opium, even all the way back then, we have people freaking out about a drug they don't understand uh, and glomming on to these rhetorical talking points like the children and just worrying for morality's sake, honestly. This, the tobacco control conversation has been pushed so far into morality now because of e-cigarettes, because the argument has, was always, we are trying to save your life. But they can't make that argument really anymore. So they're forced to rely on arguments like the children and dependence, even if the dependence comes without any physical harms. Uh, and, you know, that's just where we're at now in America. It's a, I think it's part of our roots in that we are anti-drug use, anti-altered states of consciousness. We want people to be controlled and productive members of society. Uh, we don't like people dancing, singing and using drugs, unfortunately. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's so frustrating, this this focus on on nicotine. And I think uh, we'll cover this in a, in a future Twitter space. But just today, uh, we saw Congressman Krishnamurthy is again, uh, summoning uh, vape industry participants to oversight committees to now grill them about synthetic nicotine. Because, uh, you know, again, the, this focus remains on the evils of, of nicotine that just comes out of a very severe uh, misunderstanding understanding of what nicotine is and, and years of, of it being misaligned in the public discourse. Um, so we're going to transition now to our media lapdog segment, which is our re recurring Amanda, weekly feature here on this space. Amanda, could I just add something yes. to that? Yeah, said. absolutely. Go for it. Um, right. We, the, the other thing is the FDA, they don't believe in harm reduction. That's one of the other big problems. They don't believe in the philosophy of reducing harm. They might rhetorically say they do, but it, they really don't. And we only have to look at the opioid overdose crisis that's been unfurling for decades in our country to get that message that they don't believe in harm reduction. 95,000 people died last year of an opioid-related overdose. And the FDA won't take the steps and other agencies within the federal government to stop those deaths. They won't open uh, overdose prevention sites. They won't offer a safe supply, which is offering people um, pharmaceutical grade heroin, which is heroin assisted treatment programs in other countries, um, or offering them prescriptions of, of um, things like oxycodone or whatever, and maintaining people on these drugs. 
So they won't do that for people who take opioids. Should we really be that surprised that they don't want to make nicotine available for people in a, in a, in a much reduced harm way, which is what these vaping products are, are all about? So really, um, I think of the vaping products as a safe supply, and we want to keep it safe, right? We want to avoid um, illicit markets, which is a, a, real, a real possibility if this tax is, um, is passed. So I don't believe they're really harm reductionists. I think they foolishly believe we can live in a nicotine-free society. And when they talk about vaping, when they sort of tepidly endorse it, they always talk about, well, yeah, and then you use them to then taper all the way off. Well, hold on, no. There's a lot of people who want to continue to use nicotine, um, whether medicinally or recreationally, but they're not for that because therefore a so-called drug-free society will never have that kind of a society and we'll, have a never, we'll never have a nicotine-free society. And you know what? I don't want to have a nicotine-free society. I think nicotine is an amazing drug. It helps people concentrate, focus. It helps people relax. The side effect profile is almost nil. It's one of the safest drugs as long as it's um, delivered in a non-combusted fashion. So I'm, I'm pro-nicotine use, and I want people to be able to use it in the safest way possible for as long as possible. Thanks, Helen. Lots to think about there. Uh, now let's turn to our media lapdog segment. Um, if you ask me what the most damaging piece of misinformation around vaping has been, I can confidently answer it's the way regulators, the CDC, and the media handled and continue to completely misreport the facts around the volley issue before the COVID pandemic. Last week, NPR, which is now a repeat offender in our media lapdog series, included the following quote. 68 deaths were linked to e-cigarettes and vaping products between March 2019 and February 2020. Investigators eventually determined that the vast majority of people who had sustained lung injuries after vaping had consumed THC-containing products. Do they lump in e-cigarettes and vaping products as, as the culprit, as the CDC also does, but they also admit that it was black market THC vapes that contained the vitamin E acetate. That's the critical piece of information readers should know about, but the way it's presented here is so convoluted and it continues to be misreported again and again. Question for Helen. In a world where reporters talk ad nauseum about misinformation, how does this bad information continue to be treated as fact by the media? Oh, wow, that, that is a, the million-dollar question, right? I mean, the, the problem is the media gets marijuana vaping wrong, they get nicotine vaping wrong, and then you put those two together and you just have double trouble. Um, we, we know uh, it's, it's interesting, and again, people in this space will be familiar with it, the, the drugs that young people experiment with the most are cannabis and alcohol. And uh, cannabis, again, looking at it through the lens of harm reduction, uh, harm reductionists would say experimenting with cannabis is much safer than uh, experimenting with alcohol. Although we have to be careful about that too and not 
demonize alcohol or sensationalize it. Uh, most people who drink, even young people, they don't have problems with it. And these are truths that the media just does not want to talk about. They are invested. And I think sometimes it comes down to clicks, right? You, you, you get stories. Uh, people will remember all of the, the, the hyped up hysterical stories that uh, were published in the New York Times. That's the, the, the paper of record that I'm the most uh, familiar with. And it gets uh, lots of attention. It gets uh, authors, uh, the writers of these articles like Sheila Kaplan, uh, Mac, R Matt Richtel. It gets them book deals. They make films about it. I'm sure people have seen that, seen um, how they've been able to move into these other areas. And there's just a long history of journalists getting drugs wrong in the United States. And, you know, on some days, uh, Amanda, I, I really want, I want a, a truth and reconciliation committee um, and, and have these folks, these journalists who have written so badly and, you know, the lies of omission, uh, citing junk science, never citing our side, right? Isn't it stunning? I mean, New York Times still has a pretense of neutrality, right? We hear from both sides. But when it comes to vaping, uh, rarely do they uh, go to experts who are tobacco harm reductions. I know Greg Connolly has been quoted a few times in the New York Times, but all of the scientists, the researchers, the advocates, right, from CASA to INCO to Ricardo Pelosa in Italy to where are they, right? They don't. You know, it's a pretense of neutrality and it's really one-sided reporting. And um, again, I, I draw on my background of writing about the war on drugs and writing about illicit drugs for a long time and watching how the media uh, portrays these drugs, right? Um, I want them to be held to account because what journalists write about in the drug world has real life impact, right? It has real life impact. People won't be able to get vaping products. Um, in, the, in the war on drugs, right, they, it, it directly led to mass incarceration and racist mass incarceration, mandatory minimums, um, destroyed communities, right? And journalists had a role to play in that. And I would like them to be held to account for that through a truth and reconciliation committee. Some of these journalists have a lot of power and they use it for good. And some of them use it to do very, very bad things. Absolutely great points. Um, I, I would, I would, I, Helen, I think I want to nominate you to be in charge of, of all sorts of things like the new CTP and the, the, the truth in, in reporting committee. I think these are all fantastic ideas. Um, the, the next lap dog we want to report on is from the city of Walnut Creek, California. It's a community located about a 30 minute drive east of San Francisco. The city of Walnut Creek has just approved a pretty stringent flavor ban. But what we don't see uh, California reporters explaining is that the similar ban in neighboring San Francisco didn't work. 
A Yale University study found that when San Francisco banned flavored nicotine in 2018, they actually made a major contribution to pushing young people to smoke cigarettes. Quote, analyses found that after the ban's implementation, high school students' odds of smoking conventional cigarettes doubled in San Francisco school district relative to trends in districts without the ban even when adjusting for individual demographics and other tobacco policies. And I've got a question for each of you. Uh, we'll start with Helen. Do bans work? Oh, come on. <laughs> no, um, they, they, they don't work. And it's a fundamental misunderstanding of, how, again, if you're not using a harm reduction frame to look at drugs, you're lost. And so if you don't have that frame, you're going to do things that either are going to be ineffective or they're going to actually cause harm. They're going to produce harm. The thing that I thought was, um, well, a classic, right, for, for journalists who uh, write about this, a lie, a lie of omission, right? Amanda, you said, in San Francisco, we have that study. It's not mentioned. So it's a lie of omission as far as I'm concerned. The second thing that this article did, it's really incredible. You know, the first paragraph, uh, they're just talking about teen vaping and Walnut Creek has passed this ban. The second paragraph, it doesn't talk about the ban or vaping. What does it do? It goes to this, uh, it goes to the CDC and the se second paragraph talks about how smoking is the leading cause of preventable deaths in the U.S. Hold on a minute. This is an article about vaping and a ban to help teenagers, right? Now this is classic, conflating vaping with smoking, right? And we've seen this all over the place. The, the idea, and, and millions of people believe it, that vaping is just as bad as smoking and that vaping products are tobacco products. I mean, we've been fighting this fight for years, right? Vaping pro products are not tobacco products. There's no tobacco in them. They get nicotine from tobacco plants, as does nicotine patches and gums all comes from the tobacco plant. They don't call uh, skin patches and gums uh, tobacco products, do they? And so this article highlights all so many of the problematic journalism around vaping from lies of omission, uh, conflating vaping with smoking. They're not the same thing. And just terrible, terrible reporting. I hope nobody reads it. Absolutely. You know, it's so interesting. When we talk about these media pieces, it always makes me think back to, you know, my philosophy 101 class in college this is a very basic thing you learn right away. Um, the different types of logical fallacies. And, you know, I, I feel like in each one of these media pieces we cover every week, there are at least two or three of these very basic logical fallacies on display. And and you would you would think journalists would, would be on the lookout for these types types of things. I mean, the one that you just mentioned is, is, is such a, a concrete example of that. We're talking about vaping, but with, with no transition at all, the conversation is immediately taken to the harms of smoking. Well, that's not what the ban is about at all. The ban is about, you know, the alternative to smoking, the, the much the much less harmful alternative, right? But but we're talking about those two things as if they're one and the same uh, in this piece. Not We're not talking about it that way, but in the general discourse in the media, that's often how it's talked about. Um, Michelle, question for you. 
several times in Twitter space, I, you've, you've referred to this idea that these policymakers need to be conducting some kind of outcomes research, you know, tracking what's happening as they follow these policies. And for the cities that do have bans in place, what data points should they be looking to as evidence that it's time to rescind some of these local ordinances? Yeah, so we've seen this in a few places. You know, I think it was the um, actually one of the lead tobacco controllers in Massachusetts who put out an op-ed. She's no longer in that position, but she said, do not follow Massachusetts. And she was talking about their their flavor ban and their uh, on e-cigarettes. She's, you know, she was not by any means any a pro vaping type of person. But she, what she said was, you know, when we looked at what happened after the governor's um, emergency ban on these products, we saw sales go into the illicit market. We saw sales go over the border and we didn't see any change in smoking rates. So those are the kinds of things. And, and you know, all of that data is available to all of these people, but they have no incentive right now to look at it or to base their policy on it. So I think what we need is a movement, a political movement starting in local areas, going to states, maybe eventually the federal government. We could get the, to tie their roles to, to bind them to some kind of proof of concept after the fact to actually do an assessment of policies to say, did this work? How did it work? How well did it work? What can we change or should we get rid of it? Some kind of, you know, every three years, every five years, whatever we need to reassess and see how this is working. Uh, are, are there still disparities? Are disparities growing bigger because of our policy? Maybe that's something, you know, even if we lowered the overall smoking rate or overall vaping rate, what did it do within those groups and within the various groups? Uh, and, you know, to go back to what Helen was talking about, your question about the media, it's such a, a complicated thing there, you know, just like, any other profession, there's a lot of people with different motivations, different goals. And, you know, for a long time, we have had the the agencies have a ton of power. They really hold even powerful news organizations like The New York Times. They hold them captive. If the FDA decides we don't like you, and we didn't like what you what you wrote that last time. Well, you're not going to be in this first look press conference and then you're going to have to wait till the Washington Post puts it out there to write your paper. So they really need to make sure that they don't step on anybody's toes. Uh, a lot of journalists in order to maintain that access to people in power to still be on the vanguard of, of news reporting. There's also time constraints. You, you know, we've seen, we, you know, we've all who are listening here and talking have seen this a million times where one story comes out and it's basically repeated verbatim over and over in, in a hundred other in um, a hundred other outlets, a lot of language is the same. And one reason that a lot of the language is the same is because they are functionally getting marching orders from from government agencies or from groups. Someone puts out a press release and that just gets copied and pasted, copied and pasted. So they don't really have a lot of incentive to go and look for real uh, other scientists who have different points of view. They know what the government wants to say or what, you know, the campaign for tobacco free kids wants to say. And the narrative is a good story. These journalists are at heart storytellers. Like Helen said, they want clicks, they want readers. And unfortunately, it's like this in science as well, putting out the story, well, vaping is around now, nothing bad happened. It's not really a great story. It's a much better story to say this giant industry that has shady links to big tobacco that we all hate, they're killing kids now. That's a way better story than just saying, well, some kids vape and most of them don't go on to be regular vapors, let alone smokers, you know, enjoy the rest of your day. That's a terrible story. Most people aren't going to read that. Uh, so we have this kind of um, this game going on where everyone's trying to put out the most hyperbolic, scariest sounding story. And so you know, the, it's the opposite of the cream rising to the top. Unfortunately, we have all of this news reporting about how horrible things are and how deadly something is or dangerous. And I love that kids are reading this stuff and they're just rolling their eyes because 
they understand you know, and I've said this before, all of the kids who are hearing this propaganda now that nicotine is horrible and super, super addictive, more addictive than heroin, uh, you know, last year, two years ago, when it was almost 30 percent of high schoolers saying that they had tried e-cigarettes once in the past month, the vast majority of those kids will not continue using e-cigarettes. And they're going to grow up knowing that that was a lie, that they were told a lie, that nicotine is so super addictive. Nothing bad happened to them. They moved on. They weren't addicted. Of course, there will be some who are who form a nicotine dependence and i sure hope that when they go for help that they will find the help being you know if you're a smoker you know if that's how you're dependent on nicotine we're going to switch you over to a non-combustible form of nicotine maybe even including e-cigarettes uh i you know that's going to be a while maybe never in america but but that's the sort of thing kids are looking at this and saying it's clearly propaganda but their parents are reading it it's you know these are the same parents although they're my age now when I was younger, they were watching 2020 and hearing insane stories about kids playing sex games with bracelets or whatever 2020 wanted to say. You know, that was the model. This your kids are in danger. If you don't watch this, they're going to die. <laughs> so where we're at now is everything is at an 11 and the public are completely confused. And really what we really do need. And I, we saw the FDA make a small attempt a few years back to clarify the dangers of nicotine a.k.a. that it's not very dangerous and that it's totally safe to use nicotine replacement therapy. Therapy. Um, they really need a, a, a bigger effort. There's no, you know, this should be CTP. This should be Center for Tobacco Products making a push like this or in CDC to correct misinformation that they were directly contributing to. Uh, and, and the same goes for so-called E-Valley. We still have this myth around. Uh, and, and at that point, when you see someone say e-cigarettes were linked to E-Valley, that is either someone who is not a journalist, someone who is just writing on a blog post somewhere, or they are intentionally trying to mislead and scare their readers. But there are other things where I think journalists are genuinely confused about what the science says, what, you know, wh what is the reality of the situation. And like most people in that situation where we don't know what to believe, they, they go to an authority that they trust. In this case, unfortunately, those authorities like the FDA, the CDC, Campaign for Tobacco for Kids, American Heart, American Lung, but, you know, run through all the alphabet soup. They have a very specific goal in mind, political goals. And so they are not giving the complete and total truth to journalists or to the rest of the world. Uh, and, and that's what we're at. we really need. I would love to see a Truth and Reconciliation Committee um, chaired by Helen, of course. Uh, but I think, you know, it, in all levels, we really need to take a look at ourselves. And I think, unfortunately, we're going to hear more stories about like what happened in San Francisco. We're going to see what happened in Massachusetts. And then perhaps journalists will start to pay attention to the actual science because the story will have changed. We did something wrong. Things bad things are happening again. We can report on it. We saw this with cannabis, you know, with the media was all on board, uh, you know, back in the day with banning marijuana, with going after cannabis drug dealers because the threat was to white suburban kids said, Oh, well, you get these drug dealers coming in from the inner cities and selling marijuana to our to our pristine little children who are just perfect little angels and never would have done anything bad uh and but once those pristine little white children started to get arrested for marijuana use things started to change parents started to get involved and say well you know it's just marijuana my kid's life is going to be ruined because he was arrested for for dealing drugs and then the conversation changed and now we have a big cannabis legalization movement which is great and i totally fully support and i write about sometimes uh but 
you know, we might eventually see this with, with nicotine. We saw a little bit with the menthol discussion where you saw people, you know, black activists were talking, really pushed back on the menthol ban because they recognized that that was going to come down on black people. That they were going to have to go into the illicit market or try and make their own at home or end up buying it on the street and interacting with police officers. So, so that is slowly trickling in to the community at large, to, to the general public. I think we're going to see more of an understanding in the general public as, as a more diverse set of voices come into this conversation. And I don't just mean racially diverse. I mean, you know, more scientists who aren't part of the t- tobacco control cabal, more scientists from other areas, more politicians who aren't just the conservative knee jerk. I love my tobacco growers type of politicians, politicians who really truly care about public health. So I, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic, but it is a, a tough situation we're in now. Well, I always I always appreciate ending on optimism. Uh, we're out of time for the space this week, but I wanted to thank Michelle and Helen. Thank you both so much for being our guests and sharing your wisdom. This has been a, a truly, truly great conversation. Very, very thought provoking. And we, we appreciate you both sharing your insights with us. And we hope that uh, all of our listeners will join us next week when we'll be talking to Alex Norcia, a colleague of Helen's at Filter Magazine, about his in-depth reporting into how the FDA has been caving into political pressure and steering away from science in its review of the all-too-critical pre-market tobacco application. So uh, please join us next week, same time, 3 p.m. Eastern, uh, noon on the West Coast, for our continuing conversation here on Twitter. We appreciate you all. Bye.